read uh, verses 31 through 39. Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not... I need someone on that soundboard. Yeah, okay, you're, you're working on it, okay. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also be with... How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would be present with us in the hearing of your word. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would uh, hear what it is that you have to say to us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who is the word of God. Amen. Paul's purpose in our reading from the epistle uh, to the Romans this morning is simple. He wants to encourage people who are beset with troubles. He wants to assure people who are wavering in their faith. He wants to strengthen people who feel like they are hanging by their fingernails. It's really hard for us here in the United States where the vast majority of people identify as Christians, where religious liberty is guaranteed to appreciate just how hard the life of Christians was in the Roman Empire in the early days of the church. Rome is now the home to the Vatican City, the epicenter of the Roman Catholic Church, filled with great treasures of architecture and art created by the church through the centuries to the glory of God. But when Paul was writing to the Christians in Rome, they were poor. They had no church buildings. They met for worship in underground catacombs to avoid the notice of government officials. They were subject to harassment, expropriation of their property, expulsion from the city, and to execution. Paul himself Not so long after he wrote this letter to the Romans would end up in Rome and be publicly executed for his faith. By the year 325, 
the year of the Council of Nicaea, there was an estimated 7 million Christians in the Roman Empire and an estimated 2 million of them were martyred. As Paul writes, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Tough times like we have never faced. But to these Christian brothers and sisters, Paul is able to say we are more than conquerors. Paul, of course, is not crazy and he's not bluffing. Paul is talking about spiritual realities that he knows because they have been revealed to him by Jesus. And so Paul tells the Christians in Rome about these spiritual realities to give them some perspective on what's happening in their own lives. These people are beset by troubles that are far worse than anything any of us could have ever faced. Paul knows that. He doesn't deny that physical reality. He says it right up front. We are being killed all the day long, but Paul wants them to see that something else is going on. For Christians in some parts of the world today, martyrdom isn't just something that they read about in the Bible. It's a reality in their communities and in their families. We should always pray for Christians around the world that God would protect them and strengthen them, even in the most dire circumstances. But the principles that apply to people even facing martyrdom also applies to us in our much more comfortable Christian lives. Paul's message speaks to us right here in Huntington Valley. So how is it then, we might ask Paul, how is it then that if we face tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword, how is it that we are supposed to be more than conquerors? Well, the answer begins at least a thousand years before Paul is writing. It begins back at Mount Moriah. In our reading from Genesis chapter 22, we have the culmination of the familiar story of Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice. In Genesis 22, 1 and 2, which we did not read, but begins this story, we hear these words. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. God had promised Abraham that he would become a great nation. God had promised to give him more descendants than he could even count. And that promise was to be fulfilled through this one son. This son born to him and to his wife Sarah miraculously in their old age. And now God asks for this son back. God asks Abraham to give up everything. His only son whom he loved. 
his flesh and blood. And with Isaac, to give up every hope and every dream and every aspiration that Abraham held so dear. Because without Isaac, Abraham's name disappears from the face of the earth. It would be as if he had never lived. No trace, no descendants, no legacy. We spend our lives building legacies. In our working years, we strive to make a name for ourselves. We build empires. We accumulate accomplishments. Presidents of the United States, men who hold the most powerful job on the planet as the time draws near for them to retire from public life, they begin to reflect upon their legacies, upon what they will be remembered for what they will leave behind, that it's had some kind of permanent importance. And once out of office, they write their memoirs and they build presidential libraries and they establish foundations to ensure that what they've accomplished won't be washed away like sandcastles at the beach. Now, none of us here this morning is so grand as a U.S. president. But each one of us wants to think that his or her life will count for something. That it's going to matter. That there will be some permanent residue of us having been here. But what if God said to you, I want you to sacrifice your legacy for me. I want you to lay your legacy on the altar. Now here's a hard truth that I, I want you to hear this morning. And I want you to know that I say this to you in all love and in all tenderness. Too many Christians working in the church as clergy and as lay people, too many Christians are busy preserving their legacies rather than building the kingdom of God. Too many churches are hamstrung by clinging to private legacies, positions, power, policies, programs, buildings, endowments, things that need to be offered to God as a sacrifice. And here's another truth. The only way to preserve our legacy, the only way to guarantee that what we have done in the past will live on beyond us into the future is to offer it to God. God's kingdom is not a museum. God's church is not a mausoleum and the body of Christ is not a mummy. Jesus describes his church as a fruitful vine. We, the saints, are grafted into the true vine, Jesus Christ. His word and his spirit flow through that vine and into us, his branches, so that we are living and growing and constantly changing, producing new fruit. The wine that we produced last year... Well, that's to our honor, thanks be to God for it. But each year, God is expecting us to produce a new vintage, new wine for new wineskins. And God will feed us and prune us so that we remain ever fruitful and ever fresh and ever young. As a test, God told Abraham to put his entire legacy on the altar and to offer it to Almighty God as a sacrifice. And Abraham obeyed. You, of course, know 
what happens next. God stays Abraham's hand even as the knife is poised over his son and God provides a sacrificial ram instead. Because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his legacy, he received his legacy back. And his name lives on today as the father of the faith, as the ancestor of Jesus Christ, who makes the final sacrifice. Paul in Romans 8.32 alludes to Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac. And he reminds us of another father who also offered his only son, the son he loved. But that father, God the father, did not spare his son, but gave him up for all of us. From Mount Moriah, we move to Mount Calvary. A thousand years have transpired, and there on Mount Calvary, we have the fulfillment of Abraham's prophecy. The Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. God gave his only son to be a sacrifice for our sins, to atone for our sins. The Christians in Rome, of course, know this. They know the basics of the gospel. They know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they are resting in that confidence that by faith in Jesus, their sins are forgiven. But Paul pushes them, and he pushes on to ask the rhetorical question, if God is willing to give his only son so that our sins might be wiped away, how will he not also with him, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Do you see Paul's point here? Giving his son is the hardest thing God could do, and he was willing to do it because of his deep love for us. And if he loves us that way, and that intently, won't he also give us everything else that we need? Things which are much easier for God to give. So much easier than the heartbreaking suffering and death of his own son. Because of the sacrifice of the cross, guilt and condemnation, of course, are thrown out. There's no place for them in the church. Because who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and he is the one who is interceding on our behalf before Almighty God. You might recall that this chapter, Romans chapter 8, began with a verse that I'm hoping all of you have committed to memory. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only person who is in a position to condemn us is the one who died for us. And it would be unthinkably insane for Jesus to lay down his life to pay for our sins and then to hold us accountable for those same sins. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the one who will one day, on a great and a terrible day, judge all of humankind. But for those who are in Christ, for those who have been born again by faith in Jesus, he looks at us in love and in recognition and he says, I paid for your sin. 
You're a sheep of my own fold. You're one of the redeemed. Welcome home. We have got to get a hold of that truth. If we are in Christ, there is no condemnation for us. Only Jesus is in a position to condemn and he paid the penalty on our behalf. Jesus paid it all and there's nothing left for us to prove. Now I'm not saying that Christians don't sin because we do and Paul admits that he's the biggest sinner of all. But thanks be to God, the blood of Christ is adequate to cover all of our sins. If as Christians we need to fight sin We need to resist the temptation that our old desire is always throwing up at us. But never in any circumstance is it appropriate for a Christian to feel condemned. And to condemn a Christian, as sometimes we are guilty of condemning each other, to condemn a Christian is to deny the sacrifice of Jesus. To condemn a Christian is to say that Jesus dying on the cross was not enough punishment. And I'm going to deal out some more punishment to you just so that you know how bad that you've been. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn, Paul asks. And the answer is, it better not be you, unless... You're more God than Jesus himself. It better not be me unless I'm more God than Jesus himself. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Paul, of course, raises this issue precisely because the reality of our lives is that we live in a sea of condemnation. We struggle in an atmosphere of judgment. And Paul is saying that all of that judgment and all of that condemnation for those of us who are in Christ is just a lot of bunk and is totally invalid. If your life is anything like mine, there's probably not a day goes by that you don't face some judgment and condemnation. Parents are great at this. Aren't we? Lots of kids grow up in households that are choked with an atmosphere of judgment and condemnation. Nothing they can do is good enough. Every A- minus should have been an A. Every joyful exclamation and rambunctious caper is met with a rebuke or annoyance. Every display of youthful spirit is met with contempt or disregard. And quite aside... From the fact that those parents deprive themselves of the pleasure of watching little people, little images of God in all of their creativity and wonder. Aside from the parents' loss of joy, their children's spirits are crushed. And those children take those harsh words to heart and they don't ever forget them. I know. And I know because I spend a lot of time talking to old people. People in their 80s and in their 90s. People who remember like it was yesterday the harsh words and the harsh attitudes of their fathers. The coldness and the dissatisfaction of their mothers. Parents can be masters 
of judgment and condemnation. And so can spouses. They say you only hurt the ones you love. And God knows that husbands and wives can say terrible things to each other. And that's why when they're, and, and that's when they're talking to each other. Other times, they can communicate their judgment and their condemnation with the silent treatment. Any of you married people ever gotten the silent treatment? Any of you ever dished out the silent treatment? It's a way of telling that person that you're married to that they're beneath contempt, that they're so unworthy, so irrational, so hopeless, that, you know, there's just no use in me really talking to you about this. Yeah, spouses can be experts at judgment and condemnation too. And I've been guilty of that. And outside of the circle of the family, in the broader community, in the larger society, there is also plenty of judgment and condemnation to go around. I think about one-third of my Facebook feed is someone passing judgment on someone else. Someone passing judgment on whole groups of people. No one sitting in this room has not at some point in their lives felt judged and condemned generally by people who don't even know you. Judged for how you look. Judged for what you drive. Judged for what you believe. Judged for how you do your job. And it just tears us down. And it wears us out. And if it goes on long enough, it will cripple us and kill our spirits. People can beat up on you for so long and for so hard that you don't even know who you are anymore. You don't even know that there's a different way to live. Now listen to me because this is a very important point. A person who lives in an atmosphere of judgment and condemnation for long enough will no longer realize that it's not okay. They will believe the people who stand in judgment of them. In Exodus 6-9, we have one of the saddest scenes in all of the Bible. It says this, Moses told the people of Israel what the Lord had said. But they refused to listen anymore. They had become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. Moses came to these people with a message of hope and liberation. But they had been beaten down for so long that they couldn't believe that it was possible. They didn't think liberation was possible. They didn't think that they could work for themselves or have their own lives or have their own futures. For so long they had been held in bondage, they they didn't know how to be free. May we never be the oppressors who break someone else's Spirit, because if we do, the wrath of God will come blazing against us, for God hates oppressors. And as we think about the work of the gospel, keep in mind that the people who need to hear the news of liberation are people who are discouraged. People whose spirits have been beaten up and that are broken 
the first time they hear that there's freedom in Christ, they're not going to believe you. And so we have to be tender with them. And we have to be patient with them. One does not escape from slavery to sin and to the freedom of the gospel overnight. It's a process. And it requires tender loving care. It requires the commitment of a church that's willing to walk with people. To encourage them along the way. They've heard condemnation and judgment for so long that they don't really believe it's possible to live a different way. They've heard judgment and condemnation so long that they find it hard to believe that God loves them and has a good future for them. As this church continues to grow, we will mark our success by how or how tenderly we walk with people, broken people, hurting people, people stuck in all kinds of bad habits and old hang-ups. We will mark our success by how tenderly we walk with people over the long haul, step by step as we disciple them and help them grow into the freedom of Christ. That's what a healthy church does. Into this cloud of judgment and condemnation that surrounds all of us in this world, God speaks His word like a clap of thunder. God says, I did not send my son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And to those of you who are in Christ, to those of you who have placed your faith in the blood Jesus poured out on Mount Calvary, Paul shuts the mouth of everyone who would speak against you a word of condemnation. Paul pummels everyone who would suggest that you are less than a beloved child of God by saying that if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies who's to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Believe it.